this morning. I wonder how many of you are fascinated when a new word comes into the vocabulary. Uh, I was an English major. Sometimes I introduce myself as a recovering English major. Uh, I have to compulsively uh, remind myself not to correct other people's grammar because for some reason people don't like that. I don't know. My wife had to convince me. Um, but there's a new word, relatively new word, in the last 10 years or so. Uh, it's the word selfie. Does everybody know what a selfie is? Is there anybody that doesn't know what a selfie is? This is a word that did not exist 10 years ago, but with the advent of the smartphone, and people are literally carrying a camera around with them everywhere they go, selfies have come onto the scene. And one of the interesting dynamics of that is it used to be when you saw a famous person in an airport or you know, out at a restaurant or after a baseball game and they're signing autographs, you would get their autograph, Right? Well, now that's fading away, and people don't want an autograph on a piece of paper. That's so temporary, or that's so one-dimensional. Now they want to take a selfie with the person, the famous person. And case in point, when I was wandering through the Atlanta airport a few years ago, I saw Grant Hill, multi-time all-star, Grant Hill, NBA champion, Grant Hill, in the Atlanta airport. And I said, you're Grant Hill. And he said, yes, I am. And I said, can we take a selfie? And he's like, of course. And so we take a selfie, and then I felt really bad because everybody's like, who's he taking a selfie? Oh, that's Grant Hill. And there was suddenly a line, and I was like, I'm sorry. And he said, it's okay. It was only a matter of time. And so fortunately, I got the selfie first. I didn't have to wait in line. Uh, I've wanted to create another word and kind of get this mainstream. It's the word ussy. Because technically, if there's somebody else with you, it's not just a selfie. It's an ussy, right? So this is my favorite ussy. Uh, This is me and my wife, Heather, at uh, Virginia Beach, just south of the main beach in Virginia Beach. There's this beautiful pier, and that was one of the best days of my life, and I'm just so glad that we have the memory of that. And one of the definitions or one of the defining elements of a selfie or an ussy is that you're holding the phone. So if you look really closely in my sunglasses, you can see me holding the camera. So if I take out my camera and I open up my phone, Camera, this is, not an us, this is not a selfie, this is not an ussy, because I'm taking a picture of you. But if I click that little button, and I go here, let's get that just right, we'll post this on social media, it'll be fun. Okay, so that's probably, there we go. I cut you, okay, we'll do a second one. How's that? Oh, got to get Zach and Amanda, there we go. All right, happy anniversary. Very cool. So that's kind of the definition of a selfie or an ussy. Um, it's become a bit of a problem, though, because people see anything cool, they want to take a selfie with it. And I saw this on social media recently, and it says, please do not take selfies with the fluffy cows, which happened to be <laughs> buffalo. And kid you not, when I was working summers at Cosmos Mystery Area, anybody been to Cosmos Mystery Area? out in Su- Yeah, absolutely, out in the Black Hills. There was a, a photographer that got way too close to a buffalo. Now, he wasn't trying to take a selfie with the buffalo, but he got way too close to the buffalo. Buffalo gave him a ride. Um, you can do the math. It wasn't a good situation. So we got to warn it. And finally, kind of while we're talking about the animal kingdom, I got such a kick out of this post. This is, this is gorillas that are now posing for selfies. The explanation uh, tells us that these were gorillas that were rescued, and they're in this sanctuary environment, and the people are always taking selfies with the gorillas, which may or may not be a good idea. And the gorillas 
mimic the behavior of posing for they stand upright and they turn and look at the camera. So why am I telling you all this? It'll make sense in a minute, I promise. Um, But we're starting a new sermon series. It's a series titled Self Less. And as the video explained, there's all kinds of things that we can do with ourself and with the things that we consider ours, and we can become very, very selfish and have a selfish orientation, or we can be very, very selfless and have a more selfless orientation to the world. And this series will be all about pushing aside the self, me, and making way for him to shine through my life, to live empowered by the Holy Spirit, to be a vehicle or a vessel of the Holy Spirit into the world that I inhabit. And if you uh, were with us the last couple of weeks, we did a series titled Supernatural. We spent six weeks talking about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This flows perfectly out of that. This flows perfectly, because you can't do this on your own. I promise you, you cannot do this on your own, but empowered by the Holy Spirit, living a life of supernatural love and a life that pursues supernatural intimacy with God and supernatural unity with Him and with His people, then we can start to see the supernatural life of love come out. So if you missed some of those or you missed last week in particular, I would really encourage you to go to our podcast on our website, linwoodchurch.org slash media, or just go to our main page and click the media tab. You can listen to the message. Or on Facebook, we're working on this live stream idea so that right now, hi, there's a camera over there, and we wave at the camera and we say, welcome. And uh, this is showing live on Facebook right now. So if you miss a week at Linwood, you can tune into that. Long story short, we had three nearly perfect test runs before we started promoting that. Every week since we started promoting it, there's been a major issue. So we're working on the issues. We're working on sound. We're working on internet stability and all those different things. But long story short, you can watch that live or you can go to it after the feed ends and you can pull that up and watch uh, the service as well. So uh, the last thing I'll say about that is that this series is somewhat progressive in nature. So you're here for week one. Good for you. Come back every single week. If you have to miss a week, make sure you listen because the next week will kind of build upon what we lay out each week. Today we're talking about a selfie-centered society, a selfie-centered society, which is why we had to talk about selfies and why I make sure everybody understands what a selfie is, that we live in a culture right now that has never been more focused on the individual, has never been more focused on the self. And to the extent that people are always standing in front of a mirror, taking a picture, making a duck face, doing something cool, uh, it's all about self. And it it highlights the self-absorption that our society seems to be pushing forward. And each generation on down is increasingly uh, this way. And so much so that I can say with confidence that the biggest obstacle to your spiritual growth is you. It's not your circumstances. It's not some other person. It's you. It's our fascination with ourselves and making our world all about ourselves. And when I say that and make that statement, I'm talking about the flesh. I'm talking about the ego. I'm talking about the sin nature when I say that you, those elements of each and every one of us, are our biggest obstacle to spiritual growth. And the Holy Spirit acquaints us and and pushes us into our true self, the self that is made in the image of God and the self that pursues the things of God. And so if we can get 
us out of the way and him into the forefront, we will grow spiritually more and more and more. And last week we were in Galatians chapter 5. I just want to take you through a few verses in Galatians chapter 5, sort of a progression uh, that helps make this point. You don't need to turn there necessarily. All these will be on the screen behind me. But, but here's what James chapter 5 says. It starts in verse 1. It says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. A yoke of slavery to ourselves, to our ego, to our sinful nature, to our flesh is essentially the track that Paul is on. Then in verse 16, and we looked at this verse last week, I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of your sinful nature, of your self. For the sinful nature, the self, desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. Then verse 24 and 25. I didn't get 24 on the screen, sorry. But it says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature, the self, to... Okay. Have crucified the sinful nature, the self, with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So there's this tension, this war between the Spirit, which wants us to live a supernatural life that is eternal, that is abundant, that is rich and satisfying, and the self, the little me, the ego, the flesh, the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other. This has to go away. Even John the Baptist, who they, Jesus said, there's no one born of woman like John the Baptist. He says, I must decrease, he must Increase. There's this tension between the self and the spirit, and the spirit wants to lead us to life and to peace. The flesh, in and of itself, will lead us to death, to eternal death. And so we're going to start here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. If you want to turn there, we're going to spend some time on this verse. It's on page 1501. And it's interesting, as I'm outlining this series, and I've had this one in the hopper for about a year, which is Good for you because that means I've got all kinds of little things that I've seen over the last year that I've kept in a, a little file and, and keep adding to that. And these passages, almost every week, will be starting somewhere in the Sermon on the Mount. And I had to smile uh, when I realized that because this past week I had the opportunity to share with our student ministries, with Linwood Student Ministries, and they're spending the entire year on the Sermon on the Mount in an overarching theme titled The Essential teachings of Jesus. And I love this. And I just have to applaud Zach for the ministry that he has there. It was such a treat to be a part of it, to see uh, these students like getting out and taking notes and fully engaged in the message. And we were diving into deep subjects and they were just eating it up. And to see the fellowship and the community, I mean, Zach, you're doing a phenomenal job there. And I mean, Wednesday nights in general, since we come back from from the summer. Wednesday nights have just exploded. We've had almost a hundred children, students on down to nursery in this building on Wednesday nights. And it's been phenomenal to see that growth. It's created one or two really good problems. Uh, We're running out of space in our children's area. And more importantly, we're running out of volunteers in our children's area. We've been working to rearrange some classrooms and move some things around. But that children's area, if, if if you, if the person in your seat could spend one Wednesday night a month or one Sunday morning a month helping out in children's ministry, it would make a huge difference because, because we had 36 elementary age kids here on Wednesday night. We had six in the nursery. That's 42 kids. We need at least 
seven or eight volunteers. We, we need some help there. So, little time out, please. They tell you all the time, don't tell people you need something. Cast vision. Well, we've cast the vision. People are coming. Children are coming. We need people to come and serve. One of our core values here is leaving a legacy of faith that we transmit the faith from one generation to the next. I'm looking at this generation asking, can you help us transmit that to the next generation? They're here. They're hungry. They're leaning in, and we need your help. So uh, Matthew 5, verse 3. Uh, This is a short verse. You've probably heard of the Beatitudes. Uh, There's eight of these statements at the beginning of of the Sermon on the Mount. The first one is the one we're looking at today. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, right at the beginning of this essential teaching of Jesus, these three chapters that probably represent days worth of teaching that he would give when he went around from town to town and place to place, because there was no internet, there were no podcasts, there was no video or anything like that. So everywhere he went, he was encountering people who had not heard his essential teachings, his essential message. And he started each time, I believe, by redefining who is really blessed. And he started with the poor in spirit. And you would think, of all the things, you know, if I was going to list who's blessed, I would not identify the poor in spirit as those who are really blessed. But Jesus is saying, you know, there's something about being poor in spirit that really is a blessing. And that word that he uses that we translate as blessed, it means happy, it means favored, it means enviable, it means fortunate. And so it doesn't just mean blessed in the way that we say it, and sometimes this word will be translated as happy are those, or uh, enviable are those. These are the recipients of divine grace or divine favor. So they're blessed, but who's blessed? He says that the poor in spirit are blessed. And that word that we translate as poor is, is a word picture, and it means one who is hunched over, one who is bent over, one who is crouching or cowering, cowering. And so that's where the image of poverty comes, one who would be begging, one who would be meek, one who would be uh, in need and recognize their need. And not just poor, but poor in spirit, not just physically poor, not just materially poor, but poor in spirit. This is who is really blessed, those who recognize their spiritual need. This idea of spirit is not talking about the Holy Spirit. Uh, We know that because uh, it doesn't have that precursor of holy. Uh, It's the word pneuma in the English or in the Greek language. We translate that as spirit. It occurs about 380 times in the New Testament. So the New Testament is largely about the spirit, the spiritual life. 240 of those times it's referring to the Holy Spirit, but in this case it's referring to our spirit or to spiritual realities. Only about five times does it actually refer to wind or breath, which is the literal meaning of pneuma. That's why we have pneumatics where, you know, air tools and those types of things. And so this is talking about being poor in our spirit, a spiritual poverty, and the recognition of that spiritual poverty. So sometimes this is equated to humility. Sometimes this is equated to the realization of a need. And I like to read the message translation when I'm preparing a, a, a sermon, and this was one case where it certainly disappointed, did not disappoint. Eugene Peterson nails this verse, this little verse, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall receive the kingdom of heaven. Uh, this is what he says on this verse. He says, you're blessed, you're enviable, You're fortunate when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God 
and his rule. And that's what Jesus, I think it really narrows in on what Jesus is talking about, to be spiritually poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They recognize that they're at the end of their rope. But it also talks about what they're going to receive or why they are blessed, because they will receive, they will see the kingdom of heaven. And when we think about the kingdom of heaven, this is the central theme of Matthew's gospel. This is what he's talking about nine times out of ten. Fifty times in this book, we hear about the kingdom of heaven, and he is not talking about a political kingdom. That's what I usually think about when I think about a king, a kingdom. I think of a king on a throne, and he's got subjects, and the king is king over a certain area of land. But the root word is basilia, and you were just waiting for me to put a Greek word up on the, on the screen, I'm sure. So the Greek word is basilia, basilia, and it means order of authority, it means dominion, it means royal power. It's not talking about the place, it's not talking about geography, it's talking about sovereignty, it's talking about power, it's talking about authority. And so, really, a kingdom in the Basilia sense of the word is the realm in which a king sovereignly rules. And so, for us, spiritually speaking, the kingdom of heaven would relate to the rule of Christ in the believer's hearts. A kingdom is the place where the king's will is done. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then the kingdom of heaven can come into your heart and his rule and his authority comes into your life and is done in and through your life. That's the big idea behind the kingdom of heaven. It does not come to the scribes and the Pharisees and the ones that had elevated themselves and did not see any spiritual poverty in their own life. It comes to those who are poor in spirit. It comes to those who are willing to humble themselves and request it and receive it. And the real question in all of this is who is the king? Who's on the throne? Who's calling the shots in your life? We have an ego. We have a flesh. We have a sin nature that wants to put me on the throne of my life. And I will call the shots. Thank you very much. The kingdom of heaven is the effective sovereign rule of God in my life. So he's on the throne. Christ's on the throne. Behold our God. Seated on the throne. Come let us adore him. If he's on the throne of our lives and we're making decisions based on his input, then we are in the kingdom of heaven and we get there by recognizing our spiritual poverty. Because basically there are the desires of the flesh versus the desires of the spirit. And if you were here during Made to Thrive, I used an image that sort of puts a visual to all of this, that we are created with a spirit, with a soul, and with flesh. We have physical flesh. We have a soul, which is our mind, will, and emotions. It's how we make decisions. It's how we move into the world and decide what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. It's our behavior and our beliefs. And we have a spirit. And on the screen behind me, you can see that the the soul gets input from either the flesh or the spirit. And that's a little bit of a problem for the flesh because the world's all around the flesh. And so the, the flesh is influenced by the world. It's influenced by the desires and the fleshly appetites. But the spirit is intersected by God, by His Spirit, comes to take up residence in us. And so our soul can get input and make decisions from either the fleshly appetites or the spiritual appetites. 
And this is who's on the throne. This is the question that we are asking. And I fleshed that out a lot more in the Made to Thrive series. If you want to go back, it's week two. You can listen to that again and, and, uh, and dig into that a little bit. But that's really the tension that we're talking about. When we're talking about moving from selfish to selfless, we're talking about moving from my flesh calling the shots to God's spirit calling the, the shots because Christ is on the throne of my life. And nowhere is this more clearly dove into in Scripture, in my opinion, than in James chapter 4. So we're going to spend the rest of our time in James chapter 4. Uh, I believe James had supernatural insight to this. This is James, the brother of Jesus. He, he probably knew Jesus better than most people and becomes a leader in the early church and wrote uh, a profound, profound letter uh, to the other churches around uh, the area as they were getting established that is filled with wisdom. It's not like Paul's letters. It's different than Paul's letters. Not that Paul's letters don't have wisdom, but, but it's these short, pithy statements. It, it, it's not building a treatise the way that Paul does. This is more wisdom uh, literature. So this little section that we have here, I believe, is supernatural insight or supernatural wisdom from James. And I'll read the first six verses to you of chapter 4. It says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely, but he gives us more grace? And that is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, what's going on here? Because this is strong language. You're talking about killing. You're talking about, uh, you know, being adulterous people. And I mean, he's saying, is this a little bit of hyperbole, James? Well, maybe, but... I've spent enough time in churches to know that this goes on with people that identify as Christians that, that believe that they are living a spirit-filled life or, or pursuing the things of God. And so I think we should take a step back here and say, what is the real message here? And the message is getting at this same tension between the ego and the spirit. The ego is all about quarrels. It's all about being opposed to something. So nine times out of ten, when you're mad about something or you're you're upset or you've got an issue with something, your ego is involved at some level. Now, maybe it really is a grave injustice, but oftentimes this starts when just my will gets thwarted, and that's how it starts, and that's where it grows to. And so our ego is about quarrels. It's about desire. It's about pleasure. It's about our pride. And I think verse 2 is, is a really important verse here because it talks about you want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you don't have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And you're saying, but I did ask God. I asked him many times for this thing that I didn't get. And that's what's got me so upset. And that's why I'm so frustrated. And that's why I'm angry. And that's why I'm after this thing. And I think James is talking about, you didn't ask God what you should want. You didn't ask God, what should I desire? Because if we only desire the things that God wants us to have, I don't think there will be any quarreling. I don't think that there will be any fighting. And you say, okay, fine, you first, Pastor Mark. You do that, and I'll watch. <laughs> because this says easy, and it does hard, doesn't it, right? But the more, that we, the more that we move our soul over to overlap with the Spirit, 
the less quarreling, the less fighting. We may not get everything our flesh desires, but we will get everything that God desires for us to have. Because we should desire what the Spirit desires. And if you need a hint on what the Spirit desires, it tells us right in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, it says that God was reconciling people to himself, and he gave us this mission, this ministry of reconciliation. That's what God is all about. He's about re- reconciling sinful humanity to his glorious self. He's about restoring. He's about redemption. And our little egos, our little me's, our sinful natures care more about control or more about success or more about winning the approval and acceptance of others, or more about our own comfort and pleasure, or more about material things such that the quality of our life matches the quality and quantity of our stuff. He knows all this. And it's not trying to beat us up, because it says that He gives us more grace. He gives us more grace. In fact, does verse 6 strike you as, as kind of odd? He gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I had to chew on that one a little bit until I realized that God opposing the proud, God opposing the pride in me is an act of his grace. Have you ever thought of it that way? It doesn't feel like it, does it? It doesn't feel like grace when my pride gets opposed by God or gets opposed supernaturally. But scripture is clear. He opposes the proud in order to give grace to the humble. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. His opposition of my pride, my flesh, my ego, is an act of his grace. Because let that thing run, left to itself, it goes to very, very bad places. But when God opposes the pride in me, when God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humility, gives grace to the part of me that steps back and allows him to be magnified, that's what builds the kingdom. That's what brings about his will on earth. Paul David Tripp says it this way, and I think this is perfect. He says, Jesus came to help us understand that his grace is not given to make our little kingdom purposes work, but to invite us to a much, much better kingdom. You see, you have a little kingdom and a big kingdom. We have the little kingdom where I sit on the throne and I try to call the shots of my life and everybody else's. And if we're not careful, we think, okay, I gave my life to Jesus and so now my little kingdom got bigger and now I can pray and ask God for whatever I want and he'll give it to me because I'm in his kingdom. And that's not, that's not what Jesus said. That's not what James is saying. James is saying, no, when, when we get out of our little kingdom and into his big kingdom and we seek the things that make his big kingdom even bigger and he invites us into that and we start to live a supernatural life of supernatural love empowered by the Holy Spirit, now we're out of the little kingdom, we're in the big kingdom and anything we ask with that motive, with the motive of expanding his kingdom, with his desires, not our desires calling the shots, he's delighted to answer those prayers. And he's delighted to empower us to live that way. And that's why Galatians 5.25 is such an important verse. Galatians 5.25 is the verse that says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us figure out where the Spirit is going, what the Spirit is doing through our relationship with God, our relationship with the Spirit, our relationship with His Word, our relationship with other Spirit-led people, and we keep in step with the Spirit. 
not dragging the Spirit along to bless our program and our agenda. Because the Spirit leads us into the kingdom of heaven, whereas the flesh, the ego, the self, the false self, leads us into the kingdom of me, into the kingdom of self. So what can we do in response to all this? Is there any part that we have to play, or do we just say, well, at least he'll give us more grace. We'll just keep on doing what we're doing, and and God will give us more grace. Didn't it just say that? He gives us more grace. Well, if we keep reading, we'll see that there are some things that we can do. In fact, James goes into a, a kind of a little explanation of the things that we can do to counteract this. Because grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. And we're in dangerous, dangerous territory when we start to think, well, I can't do anything because I'll be earning my salvation. I'll be earning this. I'll be earning that. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's just opposed to earning. We can, we can put forth some effort. We can bring some intentionality to the table. We can be focused on building his kingdom, on living by the Spirit, on spending time in his word, on doing all of these things that bring about his will in our lives. So James 4, verses 7 through 10, kind of highlight this. In fact, on the screen behind me, all of the verbs, all of the action steps that James suggests or I commands the early church to be a part of are in red. He says first, submit to God. Submit yourselves, your self, to God. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee to him, to you. He will flee from you. Let's start over. Submit yourself, yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We don't like the second half of verse 8. He's not talking about me. He's not talking about us. Let's start back at the beginning of verse 7. I like that one. Submit to God. Put him first. Put him on the throne. Come to him as his subject. Come to him and bow before him. Submit to him. Say, not my will, but your will be done. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. Resist the false self. Resist the sinful nature. Resist the ego. Resist the flesh and the things that it wants. Resist them. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Come near to God, and He will come near to you. We love the first half of verse 8. And we see that on plaques and on pictures, on, on those types of things. But then in verse second half of verse 8 and into verse 9, it kind of takes a turn. He said, come near to God, and He'll come near to you. Come near to God daily. Come near to God through His Word. Come near to God through prayer. Come near to God through worship music. Come near to God through fellowship with other believers. Come near to God through a discipleship relationship where you're either being discipled by someone or discipling somebody else. Come near to God through service, through serving Him. You draw near to Him, He will draw near to you. That's a promise. But it turns a corner and it starts talking about washing your hands and purifying your hearts. And it calls me a sinner. Right? Wash your hands, you sinners. 
But those are just mistakes, right? It doesn't say wash your hands, you mistakers. It says wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Because it knows there is a double-mindedness to us. There is the ego, the flesh, the false self, and there is the Spirit of God. We're pulled in two different directions. And so we are to purify our hearts. Get the ego out of there. Get the flesh out of there. Get the sin nature out of there. Wash our hands. Cleanse. That's an act of repentance. That's an act of absolution. You remember what, what Pilate was doing? When they were trying to get him to pronounce the death sentence on Jesus, he gets out a bowl of water and he washes his hands. I don't want anything to do with this. And that needs to be our posture with sin. As soon as we are convicted, as soon as we're confronted that something is sin, we wash our hands of it. We get rid of it. We're done with it. We step back from it. And we purify our hearts so that we don't live double-minded lives. And then it moves into this beautiful picture of repentance In verse 9, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. We've never seen that one on a Christian plaque, have we? James 4, 9. Anybody got that on their wall? Anybody make that your license plate? Grieve, mourn, and wail. Is James just, you know, a fun hater, a fun sponge? If it's fun, don't do it. No, I don't think that's what he's doing at all. He's describing the posture that we should have towards sin, towards our sinful nature. This is how we resist the devil. We grieve, we mourn, we wail. We mourn our sin. We do not maintain a casual indifference to our sin. We don't tolerate it. We don't make allowance for it. When we recognize it, we grieve it. We mourn it. We wail. We cry out to God. And ask him to remove it from us and ask him to show us the better way. This is all talking about a path towards holiness. And verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. I think this is a beautiful word picture. Humble yourself, your ego, your flesh, your sin nature. Humble that before the Lord and he will bring the real you out. He will bring the you that's made in the image of God. He will bring the you that is becoming more and more like Christ as you follow him, as you live the supernatural life, as you follow after the Spirit, God will lift the real you up through the false you, through the sinful nature, through the ego, which is at war with him. And the real you will come forth, and the kingdom of God will be unleashed into the, your world through the real you. And you won't think twice about inviting people to church, and you won't think twice about serving, and you won't think twice about spending time in the Word every day and spending time in fellowship. This will be an automatic thing. It will be second nature. You'll be led by the Spirit in that way. Because Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Bottom line, you've actually heard it already. I said it earlier on. Bottom line is the biggest obstacle to your spiritual growth is you. It's the little you. It's the flesh. It's the ego. And if you think I'm talking about everybody else, that might be something that's a cause for concern. If you think this is a great message for, and you can name them, and you think I'm going to share the podcast with them, I'm going to pass this one along to them, then it might be that it's a really good message for you. These are tough messages to preach. These are tough messages to prepare. But they're important messages. And these are in Scripture for a reason. In fact, uh, 
a young boy asked his grandpa one day, he said, why do I do the things that I don't want to do? And why when mom tells me to do something and I really want to do it, I don't do it? And grandpa puts him up on his lap and he says, well, it's like this. There's two dogs living inside you. There's a good dog and a bad dog. And those dogs are going to be fighting for the rest of your life. The kid thinks about it for a second. He says, yeah, that makes sense. So which dog wins the most? Grandpa says, the one you feed the most will win the most. Is the good dog getting stronger? Or is the bad dog getting stronger? Because the number one enemy is our sinful nature. It's our flesh. It's our false self. Are we feeding that or are we starving it to death? Are we listening to it? Are we indulging it? Are we allowing it? Are we excusing it? Or are we resisting it? Are we ignoring it? Are we prosecuting it and feeding the good dog on a regular basis? Feeding it, making it stronger, giving it every opportunity. Draw near to God. Humble yourself. Keep in step with the Spirit and allow the Spirit to lead you into that supernatural life. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word, even when it's challenging, even when it's convicting. Even when we don't want it to be for us, we want it to be for someone else. Help us. Help us to get out of your way. Help us to seek the things of God over the things of ourself. Help us to live selfless lives that we would decrease so that you can increase. As we continue to respond in faith to your word, Lord, I pray that nothing would hold anyone back in these next few moments from coming forward to an altar of prayer, from making an altar where they're seated, from standing and worshiping or going and writing a prayer request, that nothing would hold us back. Nothing would prevent us from responding as you would have us respond. We love you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.